This morning, we're continuing on with our series in the book of Jude. So we continue to talk about what it means to contend for the faith. Our passage picks up then is uh, Jude is addressing the church, addressing the church, encouraging them to continue to contend for the faith. This false teaching has crept into this church. This false teaching has been trying to lead people astray, trying to, it sounded like Christians, right? These false teachers have crept in. They, they were saying all the right things. They were using all the right words, but in reality, they were there are wolves in sheep's clothing waiting to devour the flock. So Jude is writing to this church, encouraging them to continue to stand strong in the midst of this and to continue to persevere, to continue to persevere in the midst of all of this. He's writing from afar, recognizing the dangers that are lurking around every corner. I think of it kind of like a scary movie where, where, where you have this dark house in the middle of the night and this, and this soon-to-be potentially a victim walking around the house making all kinds of foolish decisions as they hear bumps in the dark and as they, as they hear weird noises and they know something's going on and then they make one bad decision after another and for some reason they never turn on a light. Why? Why don't they ever turn on a light? And as viewers, we're sitting there watching this scene unfold thinking, what in the world are you doing? Why would you do that? And of course, if they're with someone, what do they do? Well, they, they separate from someone. So that person can go be alone and this person can go be alone and then they can't possibly defend themselves. And you're like, what? One bad decision after another. Jude is watching this scene play out, aware of these dangers, and he's writing into this church to encourage them, to warn them about the possible dangers. You know, I think this is a really timely message for us today. I think, I think oftentimes, oftentimes, unfortunately, it's easy to get caught in this routine as people who are in the church to almost, almost a lackadaisical sort of nature where we feel like everything is all right, where we don't miss, where we miss those dangers that are waiting for us. We're not aware, we're not, we're not primed, we're not ready for action, right? Jude is a letter that's, yes, it's written to an ancient church, but it's really, it's really a letter that's written for us today to warn us to continue to persevere, to continue to contend for the faith. So Jude is encouraging us this morning in the passage that we look at to contend for the faith by remembering a future judgment that is coming by remembering a future judgment that's coming. This morning we'll be looking at verses five through 10. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. Jude is a tiny little book, but not insignificant. Tiny little book at the back of your New Testament right before the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. Again, we're looking at Jude verses five to 10. Notice I didn't say a chapter number. It's because it is one chapter. So uh, there's no need to say the chapter number. All right, beginning in verse five. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, destroy, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you for this time that we have to gather together in your presence to to worship you, to enjoy you, to adore you, because, Father, you are worthy and you are glorious and you are above all things and you are so mighty and so holy. And, God, we we rejoice to be in your presence. Father, we rejoice to hear your word. Lord, I pray that you would just lead as I speak this morning, Father, that your words would be clear, they would resound in our ears and in our hearts, Father, and that they would bring change. God, please just guide us this morning as we, as we look into your word, as we look into these amazing, these amazing realities, Father, that you desire us to know. Father, we thank you for all this. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. All right, so beginning in verse 5, uh, it, it is interesting. Jude is a bit distinct. Okay, so again, as I already said, he, he's already, just in this first paragraph, in 3 through 4, he's given us a brief description of what these false teachers look like, but very brief. And then verse 5, he, can, he changes pace and gives us a warning. Now, it's fun to me because after reading Paul, who is a significant author in the New Testament, like you would typically expect him to hit this verse, verse 5, and to begin to kind of break down some kind of a logical, theological, philosophical like explanation as to why these teachers are wrong and why they don't make any sense and they're contrary to this and that and the other thing. But that, that's not the track that Jude takes. Jude takes a very different track. Rather, rather instead... He, he taps more into kind of the emotional level to describe the consequences ultimately of where this teaching will lead. What is this going to, what is going to be the consequence of continuing to follow the track of these false teachers? He describes their end in verse 4 as being designated for condemnation. So our passage picks up on this and then teases out what this condemnation is in verses 5 to 7 as Jude recites three very well-known Old Testament historical accounts. So he begins in verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, so that's the first Old Testament allusion in our passage. So, this is, this is pointing back to the well-known, the well-known exodus out of Egypt. The people of Israel had been in bondage in Egypt for 400-some-odd years. 400 years. They've been enslaved. They've been crying out for God to deliver them. And what happens? Jesus saves them. Uh, this ends up being one of the most significant um, redemptive events in biblical literature, in, biblical, in the Bible. So much so that, the, uh, that this ended up being paradigmatic. This ended up being kind of the gold standard of how the people understood who God was. God is the God who delivers. God is the God who saves. 
But then it's interesting in verse 5 that it goes on to tell us not only did he save this people, but then afterwards he destroyed those who did not believe. Now, that could be a little bit surprising, right? We have this weird contrast of he saved this people and then destruction. What happens? What event is this referring to, the destruction of these people? Well, this is looking back at Numbers 14. In Numbers chapter 14, the people had been led by God. They'd been delivered out of Egypt, right? The most powerful nation in the world at that point in time. And this tiny little group of slaves had managed to, had managed to get free of them because of the power of their mighty God. He had led them through the wilderness and had brought them to the precipice of the fulfillment of his promises, this holy land. He was about to give them everything that he had been promising them for so many years. They were about to enjoy the fruit of something that was so glorious. And what did they do? They stopped. They sent spies into the land in Numbers 14 to spy out the land to see what the land was like and what the people were like there. The spies came back, and largely the spies said, "Mm, we don't want to do this. This is trouble. You know, wilderness wasn't so bad. You know, maybe, maybe even going back to Egypt, maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. The people decided not to trust God. Their, their fear so gripped them that they decided that they wouldn't trust him. They wouldn't take the fulfillment of these promises. God judged them. God judged them ultimately because of a lack of faith a lack of faith that God was able to follow through, that God was able to make good on his promises because they decided that God was weak and feeble instead of being the same God, the same great and mighty God who had delivered them from Egypt. The consequence of that was 40 years of wilderness wandering. The consequence of that was 40 years of wilderness wandering. Judgment. Jude continues in verse 6 with a second episode, and this one might be a little bit more confusing for us. The, the angels, reading in verse 6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So again, you might be a little bit more unfamiliar with this strange account of angels being chained up and kept in gloomy darkness. The Old Testament reference might not be immediately ob- obvious. Helpfully, helpfully, all three of these events that we're looking at in Jude occur regularly together in ancient Jewish writings. It was an interesting thing. It was almost a popular thing for them to dovetail this release from Exodus, this um, situation with the gloomy uh, chained up angels, and then, uh, and then the next scene of Sodom and Gomorrah that we're going to look at. Um, and helpfully, we can then look at these other ancient Jewish sources, which make a little bit clearer what this reference is referring to, um, especially one in particular, First Enoch, that Jude is going to be alluding to later. I'm not, sorry, not even alluding to. Jude is going to be quoting later on in the book. So Pastor Jason will explain that a little bit more. But as we're looking here at the book of Jude, what he's probably referring to then, these angels that are, that are kept in gloomy darkness is probably a reference to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. So those of you who are, well, who are familiar with Genesis, Genesis 6 is where we have the account of the flood, 
right? We have the account of the flood. Well, just prior to that, we have another curious situation where we have, where Moses tells us that the sons of God procreated with the daughters of men. Now, there's a lot of, there's a lot of debate on what exactly is happening in that scenario, but what we do know for sure is at least a very common, probably the standard ancient Jewish interpretation of that passage. The standard understanding of that passage is that these sons of God refers to angelic beings. Angelic beings came down and procreated with the daughters of men just prior to the flood account. So Jude, picking up on this popular interpretation, and this popular interpretation tells us that these fallen angels, or we would describe them as being demons, did not honor God's authority. They did not honor his lordship. Instead of, instead of submitting to him and his desires for them and the sphere that he had kept them in, they rather preferred to follow their own desires and their own actions, giving rise to this odd account that we have in Genesis 6. Consequently, because of their actions, they end up chained up in gloomy darkness, imprisoned, waiting again for ultimate judgment. So again, we have another account that ends in judgment. And then the third account in verse 7 is a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 19. In Genesis 19, we have these two angelic beings in the, appearance of, in the appearance of men who go to Sodom in order to judge the city. They go there to judge them for their wickedness. Now, while there, a gang of men from the city attempt to, uh, attempt to know these angelic beings who, uh, who are in the appearance of men, um, which then ultimately gives rise to the, to, to the judgment of the city. The angels take Lot and his family, they rescue him from the city, and they go back and they wipe the city out for their wickedness. So here we have these three Old Testament examples of sin that ultimately gives rise to judgment. The Israelites who were judged are those who claim to be followers, but then refuse to trust God, giving over to their fears. In the second example, we see the sin of pride and the unwillingness of these angelic beings to submit to God and to his intentions for them. And the third example, in the third example, judgment is based on sexual immorality. All three ultimately lead to the same end, though. They lead to judgment. Jude doesn't attempt to argue why our false teachers are wrong. He simply cuts to the quick and gives the audience these well-known examples from the Old Testament of actions that lead to ultimate judgment. All of these sins ultimately amount to a refusal to submit to God, and there are consequences for that. Now, I think judgment is a hard thing for us to grasp, a hard thing for us to reconcile with. I get this question all the time as a pastor, why does God judge? Can't he just, can't he just kind of wave his magic wand and cause our sins to go away and get rid of all the wrongdoing so there's no consequences? How can a loving God ultimately be a judging God? How do we reconcile these two realities? Well, we can because we have to remember that first and foremost, God is holy. God is a holy God. 
He is perfect in all of his attributes. He is perfectly, he is perfectly blessed. He is perfectly lovely. He is perfectly glorious. He is good. He is beyond all of our wildest imaginations. If we tried, if we tried to imagine the greatest possible thing that we could, the most delightful, the most perfect being, if we tried to conjure this up with our imaginations, that would still fall short of who God is in all of his glory. And in his holiness, in his holiness, he is also perfectly just. It's who God is. So that justice isn't some like principle out there in the universe, something that's abstracted from who God is. It's not some other standard that exists apart from him. He is the standard of justice. He is himself just. For God to not be just would be for God to not be God because God is just. It would be like saying, I would like um, a citrus fruit that has no citrus. Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. Like, citrus is, is part of the definition of what citrus fruit is. It'd be like a vegetarian saying, I love to eat meat. Eat it every day. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, you misunderstood the definition of vegetarian. You, sir, are not a vegetarian, right? It's contrary to the definition of actually being a vegetarian. God is just. It's who he is. It's his very nature. Therefore, the practice of justice and consequently judgment is an extension of who he is. And I think in some sense, we all recognize that, and we all recognize that that's actually a good thing. If there was a murderer, if there was a, a murderer who was on trial and, and, and he somehow got away, everyone knew he was guilty of committing horrible, atrocious acts, and then he got away, we would rightly rise up and say, that's wrong. That's wrong. There needs to be justice. We would easily recognize. Or imagine maybe even a worse situation. Maybe uh, imagine a murderer who's on trial, and not only, not only does he get away, but the judge actually lets him go. The judge actually stops the trial and says, look, it's obvious you're guilty. It's obvious you're in the wrong, but eh, whatever. You can go. Could you, could you imagine the family? Could you imagine the family of the victim sitting there watching that unfold? That judge would not be just, nor would that judge even be good. That judge would be a moral monster, right? And we would rightly rise up and demand justice for this. The knowledge of justice should stir our hearts. Justice is a good thing. It's a right thing because it's part of the necessity of it is because we have a holy God, we have a holy God, so it's right for there to be justice. It's right for there ultimately to be judgment. It should stir our hearts. It should stir our hearts not only for God and for all of his beauty, but it should also stir our hearts to remember the gravity of sin. The gravity of sin. It's so easy to make light of our sins and to think of them as these cute little things and white and innocent and, well, they don't actually hurt anyone. But when you remember judgment, it reframes the gravity of your sinfulness. Our sins are serious things that should cause us to shudder 
when we contemplate the greatness of God. Sin isn't trivial, something that we need to take seriously because it will swallow us up, right? Remember how we began the scary movie with the, with the ax murderer prowling through your house at night. It's waiting to get you. We need to take that seriously. So Jude gives us some Old Testament examples that ultimately lead to judgment. But what are these teachers actually guilty of teaching? What is it that they're doing that will ultimately lead to this judgment? Jude details that in verses 8 to 10. He'll give us a fuller description of what they've actually been teaching. In verse 8, Jude notes three things about these false teachers. Three things about them. First, they defile the flesh. They defile the flesh. Now, this simply means that they're given over to sexual immorality. Jude has already noted this. He noted this even as we looked at these Old Testament references, but even last week as we looked at verse 4, he noticed there that they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. What does that mean? Well, it probably means that they've, they've taken the concept, the theological concept of the grace of God, meaning God's unmerited favor to us, and they've twisted it and they've manipulated it into something that's horrible. They've taken it and they've turned it into license and into, um, as Pastor Jason's been saying, antinomianism, um, believing, that, believing that, well, I, I have grace, so I'm not saved by works, so my works contribute nothing, so actually, I, I shouldn't even have to work. I, I, I shouldn't do anything. In fact, any obedience, any following after God, any discipline, any of these things, that's actually contrary to God's grace. So rather, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really embrace grace and God's good gift by living however I want to live. That, that, that's what they're arguing, which might sound a little crazy to some of you, but that's actually a common thought even today. I have met so many people in my life that have viewed grace through this spectrum. Well, there's grace, so ah, I, don't, I don't really have to worry about sin. I don't really need to take these sins seriously. I can do what I want to do, and it's, it's fine because, you know, God, He's, he's going to throw this grace thing at me anyways. So I'm good. And, and they might even go to the next level and say, but you, you people who follow God, you people who listen to his commands, you people who try to obey him, you're just a bunch of legalists, right? I feel like legalists is like one of those trump cards that people like to throw out like, ha ha, got you now. I called you a legalist. What are you going to do? Because um, we so often misinterpret what legalism is. So, so, so legalism, instead of being, instead of being, legalism really is, is about trying to earn favor before God or trying to force uh, man-made rules on other people. Instead of being about that, they twist legalism so that legalism now is about following God. Really, we're better off, they would argue, as genuine believers to not worry about obedience and just to follow and do what we will. Which connects really nicely into Jude's next point, that they reject authority. So, so it's not even just that they're overwhelmed and given over to their desires. They're actually advocating for a rejection of God's lordship. They're advocating for a rejection of God's lordship over, over their lives. We can do what we want, and we're not accountable to anyone. Third, 
They blaspheme the glorious ones. They blaspheme the glorious ones. What, what do we mean by, by the glorious ones? It's probably a reference to angels or angelic beings. They blaspheme angelic beings. So to blaspheme them would mean to, that they insult them or they belittle them, they make light of them. Now, again, we don't know all of the background behind the teachings that are going on in Jude. So, so what does it mean that they're blaspheming, they're mocking angelic beings? We're not totally sure. One, one possible interpretation that I think seems really likely given their other teachings is maybe, maybe they're recognizing, rightly so, that the angels served as mediators for the giving of God's law. So we see that in Acts chapter 7 in a couple of places. We see it in Galatians 3, 19. Um, we see that the angels functioned as mediators in the giving of the law. So maybe what they're saying is, look, angels, they're, I mean, they're kind of faulty. They're not great. How much can we really trust them? And if they're the mediators of the law, if they're the mediators of the commands, and they're not trustworthy, then maybe the commands also aren't that trustworthy. And so possibly it's a way of, we already know that these teachers are giving it over to antinomianism and sensuality. Maybe, maybe it was their attempt at undermining the law, bringing it down, further justifying their actions, which then also fits nicely with how he leads off, how he leads off in verse 8, yet in like manner these people also relying on their dreams. So how ultimately do they justify these actions? They're relying on dreams and visions. They're having these weird mystical experiences that cause them to feel like, feel like God, is, God is leading them in different directions in opposition to God's word. They're relying on dreams instead of going back to the tangible word of God that he has given his people, the means that he has used to lead his people for generations and generations. They're pushing back against those things and saying, no, no, no. My experience, my mystical experience is clearly superior to what we see here. Jude makes the big takeaway of this clear in verses 9 to 10. In verses 9 to 10. Um, well, <laughs> sorry, clear, clear may, maybe if you're a first century Jew. Um, this could easily be missed today, but reading, picking up in verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, you guys, of course, all remember reading about that, that occasion in the Old Testament, right? When there was this, um, this angelic, demonic battle that came together, together over the corpse of Moses. You guys have read that passage, I presume. Um, no, of course you haven't, because um, it's not actually in your Bible. Um, so, so kind of fun. Um, so again, Jude is here, Jude is here alluding to uh, a, a very popular fiction, uh, a popular piece of fiction literature um, that would have been written around the first century called The Assumption of Moses. All right, this would have been a well-known piece of literature to many people. We see it referenced a lot in, uh, in uh, 
Judaism around this time and even early Christian literature re- references the assumption of Moses. And again, it's a fictional document that was written around this time that kind of recounts the final words of Moses to Joshua. We actually don't have much of, much of this document in our possession today, but it does get referenced wi- widely. Um, now, I know what some of you are thinking. You said popular level fictioner, fiction and yet it's about Moses' last words to Joshua. I know, they have a very different definition of popular at that point in time, right? This probably wouldn't make it into our popular level literature today. But Jude, is a, Jude here is referencing that piece, and he's using it for, for illustration purposes. It'd be kind of similar to Pastor Jason being up here on Sunday morning and making a point in a sermon, and then using, uh, using something like Luke Skywalker, or Bilbo Baggins, or someone like that, in, in something that would be more popular level for us to make his point, right? It's not, saying that, uh, it's not saying that Luke Skywalker is real. It's not saying that Frodo Baggins is real. Rather, it's just making a popular level appeal. And some of you are scratching your heads like, I don't know who Luke Skywalker or Bilbo Baggins are. <sighs> and I have nothing to say to you except shake my head. But to Jude's point, if even Michael, if even Michael, the archangel, so one of the principal ruling angels, if even he is unwilling to rebuke Satan, a corrupted fallen angel, right, but instead relied on God's authority, not his own authority, but he rebuked him in the name of God. If even Michael did that, how much more ridiculous is it that these false teachers are mocking and making light of angelic beings. How much more foolish is it that they're disparaging angels? So, like, so basically arguing like that, that doesn't make any sense at all. So these false teachers, they're proud. They refuse to submit to God. They take their mystical experiences and their feelings as the foundation for what's right and wrong. They're guilty of sexual immorality and probably other forms of licentious living. And yet, they dress it all up as honoring God. Don't don't forget, these people have crept into the church. So they talk about God. They talk about Jesus. They're leading the Bible studies and the ABFs and things like that. They seem like they're on the same page. They seem like they're insiders, but they weren't. They were trying to lead people astray. Why then? Why then is Jude emphasizing the sins of these false teachers? It's not so that we can marvel at them and marvel at their failures and and wave a sad farewell as they go off to judgment. Um, Rather, it's because we all possess the ability to go down that track. We all possess the ability to follow them because we are all we are all beings who are pliable and easily tempted and easily led astray. This is a warning and a caution to the church to not follow these false teachers because these teachings are still around today and because they're tempting to those of us who are in the church. We are easily led astray. It would be, it'd be prideful, it would be arrogant of us to assume that we're above these things, that we don't have to show concern for these things, that these things can't touch us. It won't affect me. That would be prideful and arrogant. 
These, these false teachings are tapping into the very sins that plague us and plague our hearts. It's easy to feel like we're above these things. But we have to remember, these, these temptations, these things aren't just outside our walls, but they're very much at the very core of even who I am as a sinner, as someone who is easily led astray. So we need to be wary. Satan prowls like a roaring lion waiting to catch us when we're least expecting. The, the desire to throw off God's will and to shake our fists at him exists in each and every one of us. Which all of this should serve then only to stir our hearts to fight. To fight the good fight against sin. We need to be on guard. We need to be cautious. We need to be ready to engage. We need to be cautious about following dreams and visions and being led away from Scripture. Being led away from Scripture is our, is our one foundation. It's very easy for us. It's very easy to stand back and to say, yes, I trust God's Word, and I want everything to be founded on God's Word, and I want God's Word to be at the center of our ministry because God is at the center of His ministry because God uses His Word. It's one thing to say that, and yet over and over throughout history, theological drift finds its foundation in dusty Bibles. In dusty Bibles, where all of a sudden we begin to close these. We put them on our bookshelves, and then we don't engage in them. And we still continue to make strong affirmations about how good God's Word is, and how it's trustworthy, and how it's powerful, and yet our lives don't reflect that reality. And then it's only a small step before our minds begin to follow where our actions have already gone. Theological drift, the road of theological drift is paved by dusty Bibles. We need to be a people who are genuinely committed to God's word, not just in our church service on Sunday morning, but in our lives on Monday morning, on Monday afternoon, maybe Monday evening too. What about Tuesday? Throughout the course of the week, God's word should be forming us and shaping us. What about sexual immorality? It's so common today to look, to look at to, to look at the biblical, the biblical standard, the biblical standard for how we handle ourselves and how we handle our bodies as antiquated. Uh, some, some rule from a bygone era. But this is God's word for us now. God has expectations. God, God doesn't just have expectations. He has a beautiful plan for how we were made and for how we were to use our bodies. And that is under, that is under constant, a constant um, threat from our culture around us and from the temptations inside of us. We see the constant normalizing influence so prevalent in pop culture that teaches us that premarital sex is fine. We, we, we feel, we feel the effects of the lure of online easy access to pornography that shipwrecks so many men and women. Jesus even taught that the wandering eye can be guilty of sexual immorality. What about that flirtatious relationship at work that, eh, it's just flirting. It won't actually lead anywhere, Right? All of these things are things that we are called to be on guard against. So what steps are you taking to safeguard yourself? 
Where are you allowing sexual sin to enter into your lives and take root? What about pride? Remember the, uh, remember the rebellious fallen angels of verse 6? I mean, ultimately, that's pride. What about the rejection of, uh, of authority in verse 8? Again, also pride. Do we really take pride as the toxic affront to God that it genuinely is? I think sometimes we get very comfortable, especially with pride. We can say, okay, yeah, sexual immorality, I get it, that one's wrong. But pride, I mean, is it really that bad? And sometimes we like to dress it up. And, and maybe we'll even disguise it as being, no, no, but this is like a fundamental trait of every good leader, right? This kind of self-reliant, like, pride. Every leader needs to have that. I mean, that's just good leadership skills. No, it's a toxic affront against God. It's putting oneself, it's making oneself superior to all other things. It's making it all about me when it should be all about him. This kind of self-confidence should be undone, and rather we should instead have a God confidence and a trust in him. Sometimes we mask it by saying, well, all right, I'm okay with God's authority, I just don't know about anyone else's authority that God has put into my life. If we, can't, if we can't submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives, then we certainly are not submitting to God himself. Right? That's pride. But we dress it up and we pretend like it's not going to hurt us because I'm a lot more comfortable with my pride than fighting against my pride. So that, so that then, when we, we, when we begin to look at our lives, and begin to look at the sin areas of our lives, that's an area that we choose intentionally to ignore. Be like going to the doctor, and the doctor finds that you have all kinds of, uh, all kinds of malignancies, all kinds of issues with your body that will ultimately lead to death, and the doctor says, but I have good news. I can cure every single one of these maladies. I can take care of every single one. And us saying, you know what? Actually, I'm okay with this one and this one and this one. You can, you can get rid of these other ones. I don't like them. Doctor's like, wait, wait, wait. But this is going to lead to your death. Yeah, I know, but I'm kind of comfortable with these ones. No, of course we wouldn't do that. We would say, get them all out. If you can cure them all, then cure them all. Pride isn't okay. Pride isn't the mark of a good leader. It's not something to laugh about. It's a cancer that eats away at the soul. But praise God, we have a good physician. We have a good physician. Just as Jude began in verse 1, we have a Father who loves us, and we have a Jesus who keeps us. When we put our faith in Christ, he takes the judgment that we deserved. When we come to him, Jesus is more than able to carve away the cancers of our sin. In the same way, we continue to walk in Jesus. We know that we deserve judgment, but he rescued us. We know that we're guilty of sin, but he pardoned us. And we have no place else to turn but to him and his infinite goodness. It's all about him.
It's in him that we find our rest. Not running away from him and running away from his authority, but rather running to him with arms wide open. That's where we find our rest. If we want to contend for the faith, we do it by fighting on our hands and knees before him in adoration and worship, making much of him because he is worthy to be made much of. Because it's all about him. The only way we can fight this good fight, the only way that we can contend for the faith is before him in his presence, enjoying his glory. That's what it looks like to contend for the faith. That's where we take our stand with our heads bowed low before him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning, Lord. I thank you for this word. God, I pray that we would continue to contend for the faith, Lord, that we would be weary of, of, the, uh, of the dangers, of the, of the issues lurking around every corner. Father, there is sin at work in this world, and it's not just out there, it's in here. Father, I pray that we would take these realities seriously, that we would fight the good fight. Father, that we would do things that are beyond our ability because of your spirit who is at work in us. Father, please continue just to draw our hearts and our mind to yourself. Lord, please make much of yourself and your people. We pray this through your Son and by your spirit. Amen. Please rise for our benediction. Our benediction comes... Again, from the book of Jude, verses 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and have a good day. Hey friends, thanks for joining us online today. If you have further questions, are in need of prayer, or would like to give financially to the ministries of Lakes Free Church, I encourage you to visit our website, lakesfree.org. There you'll also find information regarding our upcoming events. You can access all of our past sermon series, along with a host of other valuable resources. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us in person for one of our Sunday services or other events. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us, and may God bless you.